Well, good morning again. I told a story a couple weeks ago of being able to go on a trip with uh, Cliff Miller down to uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, Thursday night that week, I think it was Friday night that week, that we uh, had some time at the hotel and we got out and we walked around, Ben and I, we walked around and made our way through all of the D.C. stuff. You know, we walked by the Capitol and we walked by the Washington Monument and just made our way around. In the news, one week later, Friday night, a week later, March the 10th, a man carrying a backpack was arrested Friday night at about midnight. So this is like the time that we were there. One week later, uh, this happened. I don't know if you were paying attention. Uh, after he breached security at the White House complex, he was discovered by a Secret Service officer near the south entrance of the executive uh, residence. So he is there. His name is Jonathan Tran, 26. Uh, he, told, uh, he, he told the people who were arresting him, he said, I'm, I'm not here to do any harm. I'm a friend of the president. I'm, I'm his buddy. I just want to talk to him. I've got, and, and in his backpack, he had a book uh, written by President Trump, and he also had a letter that he had written to President Trump. And he thought that midnight was a good time to make a visit uh, to the president, uh, to have a conversation with him, deliver this letter. Uh, the kind of the scary thing about it was that they did not catch him the moment that he jumped over the fence. In fact, he made it over three different fences, and later they found uh, the security footage that he actually was able to get up and hide behind pillars uh, and different things before they caught him, and how they caught him was just walking up, grabbing his hand and saying, you know, what are you doing here? Uh, there's something about the White House, something about Washington, D.C. that makes it very inaccessible. Uh, when we were there, we thought, because all the buildings start to kind of look alike, we thought that we were standing next to the White House. What it ended up being was the Treasury Building. In the Treasury Building, we were able to actually walk and put our hand on the side of the building, and we're like, man, we're touching the White House. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, there's no way. Like, we're actually at the White House. And we look around, we're like, oh, it's, you know, over there. Uh, and so, um, but, but you have all this going on, and, you, and really what happens there in D.C. is it just is this idea that there's some inaccessibility uh, between them. Um, while he was carrying this uh, backpack, uh, he was not detected at first, but he was carrying, among other things, a United States passport, an Apple computer, a book written by President Trump, a letter he had written to President Trump, and two cans of mace he also had with him. So it wasn't like he was just on a... Uh, you know, going to check in on his buddy. He had one in his pocket. He had one in his backpack. It didn't look like he was up to any good. Uh, we don't really know any more about the story than that at this point because those things just kind of all of a sudden get quiet and nobody ever finds out what happens. Uh, there are other incidences of this. In April 2016, Joseph Caputo tossed a backpack over the north fence before jumping over himself. He was draped in an American flag and he was immediately arrested. In April 2015, Jerome Hunt climbed the fence on the south side of the White House complex and was cornered immediately by security dogs. Have you ever seen what security dogs can do? Like that to me is way more scary than anything else that might happen. We had, uh, I was a youth pastor and we had a guy in our church who trained uh, these canine dogs. And so uh, one of the things that we would do with our youth, we would dress them up in the bite suit, the ghillie suit, is that the right word? The bite suit, whatever it is. And then he would release these dogs on them and just drag our kids all over the yard. It was, it was amazing. Um, I'm not the youth pastor here at this church, in case you're... Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, yeah. I did a few things back then that maybe weren't within the insurance uh, 
perspective. October 2014, Dominic Adsaina, he barely made it onto the lawn, and then he was subdued as he fought off two police dogs. In April 2014, this one's nice, a man wearing a Pokemon character, Pikachu, made it over the White House fence and onto the North Lawn where he was apprehended. If you want access to the president, jumping over the fence and running in to knock on the window is probably not the best way uh, to get access to the president. There are better ways to go about it. But there's something in us, there's something uh, in us that desires to be near power and authority and just this closeness that we desire. There's something in us that this is not only do I want to, to know more about you, like we, we can get all excited and go up to a parade route just so that we can see the motorcade go by and just see, you know, a hand wave. But we're drawn to that. It's built into us. You know what it's called? It's called worship. It's actually built into us as human beings. We desire that connection with power, with authority. We, we long for it, we yearn for it, and we actually have this idea that not only do I want to know that power, that authority, I want that power, that authority to know me. And if it knows my name, if you know my name, that's even better. And if, if, if you know something about me and about my family, that's even more to be desired. And yet we are always kept at an arm's length. We're always held back. There's only a certain number of rings that you're allowed to get into when you go to the White House. There's something about that just keeps us at arm's length. We can never quite get there. We can never quite get inside of the circle. But we want to relate. We want to connect. We want to be near. So if you're using your outline, it's in your bulletin this morning. The question we want to begin with this morning is can a person actually draw near to God? Can a person actually draw near to God? We sing songs like, Jesus, draw me ever nearer, or nearer, my God, to thee, nearer to thee, or be near, O God, be near, O God. There's this desire to be close, and, and you understand that while the President of the United States is important, he is not anywhere near the importance of God, the creator of the universe. And we actually have this desire, this connection, thinking that we can actually get close to God himself. It's audacious to say it at least. But we have this desire, this clinging, this wanting, this desiring that has been built into us from our very being. Those who are not believers may come and they look and they say, this is ridiculous. You think that God who spun the world into motion, you think that you can have a conversation with him? You can't even have a conversation with your local congressman. And you want to talk to God himself? So how can you be near to God? How can we actually make this connection? Well, Hebrews chapter 7 where we're headed today. Hebrews chapter 7, if you're using your pew Bibles there in front of you, it's page 1258. I'm using the New International Version this morning, so you can make your way there if you like. Hebrews uh, chapter 7, we can draw near to God. This book has been building up, and this is a great crescendo that we find in this chapter. It's all been building up, this, this really, this desire has been built, 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 and now we can say, yes, you can actually draw near to God. Verse uh, 18 of chapter 7. So Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18, would you read with me? The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which what? By which we draw near to God. 
We need to give a little bit of backdrop. If you haven't been with us on our journey through Hebrews, uh, we don't know the author of Hebrews. Uh, we don't know who they are. There was a, a time where some people thought it was the Apostle Paul, but his writings don't, doesn't really match up with this. So we said it's, it's probably a different author than the Apostle Paul. It could be one of the other apostles. There's some arguments that are made that it could be one of the deaconesses who was in the early church, one of the females who wrote it. And in that time period, that's why she wasn't named. It was because people may not read it if, if they knew that it was a female who wrote it. And so during that time period, this, th there's really no understanding of who this is. But as she, she or he is writing this letter uh, to the church, uh, to the Hebrews, to the Jewish culture there, they are under intense persecution. At 70 AD, the temple will fall, and this is written around there. There's arguments that the temple falls in the middle of the book even. They're under intense persecution. Why? Because if they are coming from a Jewish heritage, if they are Hebrews and they are leaving the faith and going over to this new faith called Christianity and following this new leader called Jesus Christ, they are being pulled away from the faith and they are seeing intense persecution from the Jews as well as the Roman Catholics. Excuse me, the Romans. I didn't mean to put Catholics in there. This is a friendly letter. Whoever the author is, the, the, the person knows the readers well and tells them, it says, don't go back. Now that you are receiving this persecution, now that the pressure is on, it would be so much easier for you just to go back to the way that you were before you met Christ. Don't go back. It's too easy to do that. Stay the course. Don't fall away. We've said anchor down. Hold on. And each chapter uncovers a personal God who invites each and every one of us to be in relationship. And so we're going to move through this outline quickly. So if you're following along in your, in your notes this morning, first thing I want to say is out with the old. Out with the old. Hebrews 7.18 says this, The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. The former regulation was set aside because it was weak and useless. Here are three fill-ins for you. It was a priesthood that didn't work, a law that could not save, and an access that wouldn't open. A priesthood that didn't work, a law that couldn't save, and an access that wouldn't open. And the author of Hebrew proves it here. Let's go back a few verses to verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. In regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests." And when we have said it is even more clear, if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become priest is not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I know that I'm reading quickly. I want you to get the big ideas here this morning. I'm not going to dive into each of the little layers here. But the big idea that I tried to get across is a priesthood that did not work. 
You see, there was a thousand years. We talked about this last week. In Genesis chapter 4, we meet this character, Melchizedek, and he talks with Moses, and we find out he is not only a king, but he's a king and a priest. So he comes from a different line, and he serves uh, Moses there. He serves Abraham, excuse me, there uh, in the wilderness. And then a, a thousand years passes. So that's 2000 BC. A thousand years passes, and we pick up in Psalm chapter 110, and David again picks this obscure character, Melchizedek, and talks about and makes this comparison this typeset that would be an illustration of the Messiah to come, that there was this king in the order of Melchizedek, and because he was this king in the order of Melchizedek, that meant he was a priest as well. A thousand years have passed, and now we come to present time a thousand years later, and the author of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he is the one who they've been forecasting all along. And so as we come here and we look at this passage here today, we see that David would, a thousand years previous, he would not called for a new priesthood in Psalm 110 if the old establishment was going to work. King David would not have written about the priest who would come in the line of Melchizedek if the line of Levi and the line of Aaron was going to work. But there was a problem with that. It wasn't going to work over the long run. You see, each priest was limited to a 30-year term. Each priest would have to give a new sacrifice every year. Everything had to be repeated again and again and again, and that demonstrated the inadequacy of what was being done. That demonstrated the imperfection of what the priest was actually doing, because it had to be refreshed again the next year. And after 30 years, it was going to be set aside. So secondly, a law that couldn't save the old law, the old way of doing things served as a tutor. Paul calls it in Galatians. He calls it a tutor to reveal the sinfulness of men's hearts. In Galatians chapter 3, 25, it says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to do what? To lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. That's what the responsibility of the law was to demonstrate the need for the Messiah to come. It was an access that wouldn't open. He shows them the vanity of retreating back into the ritualism of Judaism. They had found Christ. They had found this new way to go forward. They had found the Messiah. And now some of them were going to retreat back and fall back to their old ways and their old patterns. They said, why would you do that? You've lived for so long in fear that that priest, if he doesn't do his job correctly, then the whole tribe will fall away. If he doesn't do his job correctly, then we are going to be out of relationship with a holy God until someone else is willing to go in and correct that. So they lived in fear of this. And each year they would send the high priest, they would send him into the Holy of Holies to meet with God himself. And they would tie a rope around his ankle just in case, just in case he wasn't set before God, just in case his heart wasn't right because he was a man too. And so just in case, if he dropped before God, if he was killed there because God would not allow impurity and imperfection to be in his presence, that they would not have to go in after him, that they could drag him back out of the Holy of Holies. And the author of Hebrews is saying, why would you want to go back to that? That fear and trembling of wondering and hoping that something is going to work. No, he says, out with the old because it is weak and useless. <coughs> And the next fill-in is in with the new. Hebrews 7.19 says this. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near 
to God. It is a better hope that is introduced. That's the sermon title. There's a better hope. There's more hope than that. More hope than that leader is going to keep himself pure before God. There's there's a better way. And here's your three fill-ins that go with that. There's a priest who remains qualified. There's a guarantee that lasts. And there's an access that always opens. Verse 18, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but he became priest with an oath when God said to him, and this is being quoted from Psalm 110, this is a thousand years previously, he is quoting this text, the Lord has sworn and it will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been those many priests since death preventing them from continuing in the office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. He is a priest that remains qualified. See, all sinners, all priests are sinners just like you. They needed a mediator just as much as we do. There was no permanency in what they did and none of their work. This is a culture that we don't live in anymore, but this was a culture where they waited for that leader to connect with God. And if he did, then the rest of the nation could also connect with God. And just about the time that the people would get used to having that high priest, just about the time they get used to him connecting with God and that things were moving smoothly, then the 30-year term limit would come up. Or something would happen and there would be sin in his life and all of a sudden that would fall apart and then this fear that they would not be able to connect with God anymore and that God's wrath would be poured out upon them would circle back around. You see, Jesus Christ is not a priest as a son of Aaron the Levite. Jesus Christ is a priest. He is the king because he is, as, as the psalm tells us, Psalm 110 tells us, he's a priest. He is the son of God. And when Jesus quotes this text, he talks about, he says, how can you define that King David talks about this man in the line of Melchizedek? And he talks about him as though he has authority over himself, King David. Well, that's because he is in the line of Melchizedek. That's because he is the son of God. And so some of these uh, priests who would come along, they would get corrupted. They would have sin. Some of the most famous ones is Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. They were living in sin, and yet they were the priests, and they were still the ones who were going to have to go into the Holy of Holies. And so they would have this corruption of sin that would would ruin what they would do. But that corruption of sin never affected Jesus. That corruption of sin never filled his life. Why? Because he is sinless and perfect. When he comes to earth and lives on our behalf, the sinless and perfect sacrifice. And so he breaks the bond there. He breaks that history. He's the priest that remains qualified a guarantee that lasts. We all make proposals and come up with ideas that we cannot and never will accomplish. 
It's just because we do not have the natural power within us to do that. But God doesn't have that problem. He is an eternal God. And because he's an eternal God, when he says he will do something, he will do it. And he has the power and the authority to accomplish what he says that he will do. So here in this text, we see the word oath, that he has set aside an oath that he will go forward in the order of Melchizedek. That is God's oath to you, not because he needs to keep himself accountable, but because that we need that to latch on to. When we read the text today, we say, you've made an oath to us, God. And when you made that oath to us, you said that you would be a guarantee or you are guaranteeing your own priesthood. It gives a double guarantee to help us with our weak and frail and fretting minds. What God says he will do, he will do. It's already been done. Christ has already been set aside as our high priest. We don't need to retreat from him and be afraid of him, but find rest in him. And thirdly, that access door is always open. Here's where the capability of drawing near to God or having a right standing before God really comes into play. Access to God is what this means. Access to God, the, the use of the present tense where it says, we draw near to God, meaning that we continue to draw near to God. That is a process that didn't end when the book of Hebrews was finished. No, that is always happening. And how is this brought about? It is through the better hope that has been described, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> his better sacrifice, the better hope that has been set aside for you and for me has been secured. So out with the old, it was weak, it was useless. In with the new, it is a better hope that has been introduced always and forever. Always and forever. I can't say that without having that song come up in the back of my mind, right? And some of you are just kind of mouthing it was always and forever. All right. The big picture and the main point. Do you see here in verse 25, the word hence or the word therefore? As a teaching tool, anytime that you see the word therefore in Scripture, you need to look and see what it is there for. And what it is doing it is the, the conclusion is the, the, uh, putting all of what has been seen before, putting it together in one verse, in one text. This 25 is the main point. It is the conclusion of it all. It says this, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Let me read that. It's in the NIV. I want to read it in a couple different translations so you can see what is being said here. In the English Standard Version, it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In the King James Version, it says, Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And the New American Standard says, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So I said this verse 25 wraps it up. And you can just take it in three chunks of that verse, and you can see where each of these pieces come from. The first chunk is this, Christ is able to save forever. Christ is able to save you. To save 
save us forever. It's the first part of the verse. The second part of the verse, Christ always lives, excuse me, Christ is able to draw us near to God. There it is again in the same passage, the same text. Christ lives to draw us near to God. That's the second half of the verse. And the third verse, third part, Christ always lives to make intercession for us. Christ is able to save us forever. Christ is able to draw us near to God. Christ always lives to make intercession for us. Why? Why do we need it? If you're here this morning and you say, you know what, that sounds nice. I don't know that I need it, but maybe there's some people around me who need that crutch. The reality of the situation is, what is it that we need access to? Just like getting access to the White House, the one who is in authority there is so much greater than any one of us. And the White House is only a small, small reflection of the bigger picture of who God is, the God of the universe, the God who flung the stars into space that we were just beginning to see the edge of. And we need access to him. Because as we learn more about God, God will not allow any sin in his presence. Why do we need that access? Because God himself is who we should be afraid of. When we learn about the wrath of God and the way that he will not tolerate sin in his presence, we had better have a better way of coming in than on our own good deeds because it's not going to make it. It's just as foolish as thinking that we're going to jump over the fence and climb our way into heaven. That's not the way it's going to work. That's not the way that God laid it out. He said, there is one way for you. Christ is able to save you and save me, to save us forever. Christ is able to draw us near. Christ always lives to make intercession for us. Not that he just do that in the past, but he is continuing to do that every moment of every day. He continues to make intercession for us because if not, maybe we're good for a year. Maybe we're good for 30 years. But at some point, that falls away unless Jesus Christ is our intercessor. So as the band comes forward this morning, is it not a wonderful thing to think about in this season where things are new and and we're just beginning to start to see the buds come alive? Spring is here almost. We're getting there, right? There's this new life that comes. And each year we kind of see as the seasons change. The seasons change, and you have a winter season, then you have a spring season where new life comes, and you have uh, each day that where it gets dark and then it comes light. And it's all of these reflections towards needing a savior, needing redemption, needing to be reborn, rebirth, reborn. Reburn is what I said. But as those things come to life, out with the old, in with the new. The new is Jesus Christ. And the great God, the God of righteousness says, yes, you can be drawn near. Come to me. Come close. Draw near. Come. In Romans 3.23, 
we've learned that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. On our best day, maybe we're feeling good, we're feeling strong, but we're just a little bit short. We've all come short of the glory of God. But John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. This is it. Won't you come? Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man comes to that door and knocks on the door, I will come in with him and dine with him and share a meal with him and be part of the family together. I will come in. Just open the door. When Jesus is talking to his disciples, as he's calling them to be his disciples, what does he say? 419, he says, come, follow me, and I will make you, I will mold you into fishers of men. This morning, I pray that you will understand that you can be drawn near and close, come in close to God of the universe, but there's only one way, and his name is Jesus Christ. And 2,000 years BC, he was going to be forecasted through this man, Melchizedek. And then 1,000 years later, King David was going to talk about him through Melchizedek, but then one was going to come. And 1,000 years later, then we've got the author of Hebrews. And now 2,000 years later, do you know what it is? You know what the key is to draw near to God? It is Jesus Christ. And he says, come. Come close. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that your son Jesus is able to save us once and all, for all, forever. We thank you that he intercedes on our behalf today, in this moment. Lord, many have started out the day feeling good, feeling strong, and sin has crept in already before the service is even over. And so we need you to intercede on our behalf again and again and again and again. And yet you call us, come. So Lord, I pray if there's any here this morning, this is the first time they're hearing this. They've heard something like this before, Lord, but they are, it's, it's alive today because your word is sharp and like a two-edged sword. It cuts and it's piercing this morning that they would come to meet you for the first time. Lord, if there's others here, as the disciples were, who knew about faith, they knew about religion, but Jesus says, come follow me, and I'll mold you into something different. I pray that there'll be those who would come on that call as well. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for your word, the way that it speaks to us, and it's speaking to us right now. Give us the courage to respond. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If that call to come resonates with you this morning, you have in front of you a connection card. You could take that and you could drop it off at the information desk or there's also a box on the wall you can drop it in or I will be right in the back during this last song and you come and talk to me, please. I'd love to share you who Jesus Christ really is.